0: What's well, fun to be able to dig into the scripture today, and uh, kind of a bittersweet uh, thing for me uh, specifically today, um, you know, the the bitter part is this is my last uh, sermon for a while. Uh, the sweet part is tomorrow I begin a, a 10-week sabbatical that the elders have graciously given to me and my family, and uh, we're really thankful for that and thankful to you for the, uh, their support in that, and so many of you have been so encouraging, and um, just so you know, we're going to be out of town for most of it and really trying to kind of Um, disconnect from electronics and a lot of other stuff and just try to rest and spend time with the Lord and spend time with each other. Um, We're thankful that at least, as far as we can tell, we're not on the edge of a cliff of some kind, that this is like our last hope to get rescued from. I, I hope that's not the case. Um, but really just a proactive step to try to be healthy. And I really want to lead in the next few years with a lot of strength and, and courage. So I'd love your prayers for us. Um, also, be praying for the, the folks that will be leading here. You're going to be in great hands. Josh Watt, who's our student ministry pastor, will teach for a good chunk of the time while I'm gone. He's part of our teaching team on a regular basis, and, and you love him. Um, but you'll also get to hear from some of the, the other Redemption pastors. Um, this next week, make sure you're here. Ricardo Stewart will be here from Redemption Tempe. I think he's probably... I don't know. This is just one man's opinion. It's subjective, but I think he's probably the most gifted preacher in redemption, and so you'll want to be here for that. You also get to hear from Tom Schrader and Tyler Johnson and Aaron Daly, who's the pastor of Redemption Alhambra, and uh, so it'll be a great summer. We'll continue to work through uh, the gospel of Mark, um, but please do pray for me and our family, and, and we'd appreciate that. So. So thanks. Um, But let's get into this for today. We're kind of beginning a little bit of a new section in the book of Mark. If you're new with us, we've been studying this gospel for about 10 or 12 weeks now, and we're just kind of working our way through it. And the last chunk that we looked at really had to do with Jesus having some confrontations and encounters, particularly with the religious leaders known as the Pharisees. They would see him heal somebody and they'd have a problem with it. They'd see him eat grain on the Sabbath and they'd have a problem with it. They just have a problem with everything Jesus is doing. And so there was this stretch and chapters 2 and chapter 3 of Mark, where they're just constantly battling each other. Then we get to chapter 4, and what we looked at last week is Jesus gives a bunch of parables, a bunch of stories that really helps explain, here's why some people hear what I'm saying, but they really hear it in their hearts, and here's why other people hear what I'm saying, but they don't really hear it, and he kind of explained that. Well, now in this section, beginning in verse 35, we we begin kind of a new little piece here, where over these next four weeks, what we're going to see is four different stories where Jesus does something significant and then a response is demanded, right? So Jesus is going to do something and there's going to be an option. How are the people in the story going to respond? Are they going to respond with faith or are they going to respond with doubt? And really by implication, us as readers, we have that same choice. So we're going to look at what Jesus does and then have to make a response. And so this first particular account is of Jesus calming a storm. His disciples are incredibly afraid And Jesus calms the storm. Now, do you know what the most common command in the Bible is? The most frequent command in the Bible? Not necessarily the most important, but the most frequent? Fear not. Be not afraid. Don't be afraid, right? It happens a lot because sometimes God or an angel will show up and people like eat carpet, right? They're so scared, like there's on their face. And and so he has to say, hey, 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 don't, don't be afraid. Fear not. Why do you think that's such a common command? I think it's because we're afraid. There's a lot to be afraid of, and we're a fearful people. Everybody's afraid. I've been listening over the last few months to this podcast called Invisibilia. I don't know if you've seen it or heard of it. It doesn't come from a Christian perspective, but they talk about a number of kind of issues that are sort of invisible, things like fear and things like your thoughts and things like, um, you know, the way your mind works and stuff like that, And, and they did an episode Uh, related to fear. And there was a really interesting uh, story that they told. There was a professor, uh, his name was Roger Hart, and he studied, this was about 30 years ago, he was in a small town in Vermont. And what he wanted to study was how much freedom kids had to sort of roam and explore their, their world. So with a bunch of people's permission, he got surveillance equipment and other stuff, and he just watched how kids played. He watched where did they go, Where were they allowed to go? And what he found was that, again, this was 30 years ago, five, six, seven-year-olds had the run of the whole town. They could go into the forest. They could go a mile away to the lake. They could go into kind of downtown Main Street. They could ride their bikes. They could walk. They could just do whatever they wanted. And he made maps of this town and, and sort of where people allowed their children to go. Well, fast forward 30 years to just a couple years ago now, he went back to the same town and he did the same study. You know what he found? Whereas 30 years ago, kids had the Rome of the whole town, now, most of the time, kids couldn't go farther than their own yard. He thought, wow, that's, that's pretty interesting. Even some people that were kids when he did the first study were now adults and they would, even though they had Rome of the whole town, they wouldn't let their kids have Rome of the whole town. And he said, this is so interesting. And I, he kind of started digging into it. And what he found was it was really weird because the town was about the same size geographically. It was about the same size in terms of population. There was no increase in crime rate. In fact, the crime rate had gone down a little bit. No environmental factors about the town had changed, right? It was basically the same socioeconomic status that it was before, the same income level, the same all that sort of stuff. What changed? What changed? Well, he concluded that what changed is that now everybody's more afraid. The environment didn't change. There wasn't any reason to be more afraid. There was nothing more to fear. The parents were more afraid. Well, it makes sense, right? You're inundated with news stories and media and all kinds of things that, what do they do? They they get ratings based on how afraid they can make you, right? And so we end up afraid of all these things happening to our children that aren't going to happen. Right? And so we live with this constant fear of what could happen that probably won't, but we're still afraid of it. Actually, in, the, in this podcast, they, did, they compared uh, that situation to this other woman who's one of 400 people that they've found in the whole world, who the part of her brain that, that the, the part of your brain that triggers fear is calcified, and this woman can't experience fear. Right? She's had people rob her at knife point, and like, okay, like, not afraid, like, <laughs> No panic, right? So, so it was really interesting because this woman is in constant danger, right? If, you, if you're not afraid of anything, people can do anything to you, right? Fear, fear can be like a, a good survival instinct, right? She has everything to be afraid of and never feels fear. And the rest of us really don't have that much to be afraid of. We're constantly afraid. We're afraid of what will happen to our kids. Some of us, were afraid of Are we going to keep our job? Am I going to get a job? We're afraid of all kinds of stuff. We're afraid of getting that diagnosis that we so fear. And my mom got it and my aunt got it and my turn's probably coming. We're afraid of getting that phone call we don't want to get. We're afraid that things might never change. Things aren't going well, and I I don't know if they're going to get better, and I don't know if my life's going to get better. Some of us are alone. We're afraid that we'll always be alone. Some people are stuck in marriages that are just stagnant or declining, or they're getting tense, and they're getting worse, and you're afraid that it's never going to be what it was. We're afraid of not mattering. We're afraid that we're going to do all this work and pour all this energy and no one's going to see it, no one's going to appreciate it. We're afraid of everything. The disciples found themselves afraid. Jesus' goal through the whole story of the gospel of Mark is trying to move people from fear to faith. So the question that I've been asking as I've been looking at this passage is, what's the journey from fear to faith? What's the journey? What's the process look like? If we, Maybe you're in a situation right now, you're in a circumstance where you, you feel afraid right now, you feel panic, you feel concerned, or maybe you'll be in one in the future, but you for sure will find yourself in one of those places. What's the, what's the journey? How do you move from being afraid to being full of faith? That's what we're going to see in this story, this kind of case study as this happens with the disciples. So what we see is that the first sort of place, the you are here on the map, so to speak, is fearing circumstances. That's maybe where you find yourself. It's maybe where you will find yourself. It's for sure where the disciples found themselves. Look at chapter 4, verse 35. Mark points out verse 35 that all the the stuff he's describing happened on the same day, so the same day as the parables that he taught. So Jesus had been standing out in a boat. All the crowd had been up on the mountainside. Jesus had been teaching. Mark says that very same day, they just, uh, on that same day when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. So he's already standing in the boat. He says, let's go. And so they get in the boat. It says then, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. So think about this. That this great windstorm, this great storm breaks out on this lake, so much so that the waves are crashing into the boat, and the boat is starting to fill. Now, this kind of storm happens a lot in the, in the Sea of Galilee, at least some sort of serious thing. The Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level, Only 30 miles away is Mount Hermon, which is 9,200 feet above sea level, right? So when you have that kind of thing, meteorologists say that these winds and these gusts and these pressure systems create that kind of storm effect. When I was in Israel a number of years ago, we spent a night at the Sea of Galilee on a kibbutz there right by the sea, and and I remember walking, I had to do some laundry, and I remember walking back to our room, and it was like one of these stiff winds that's like knocking you over, right, because it's just blowing so hard. I thought, oh, this this is how this happens. So these storms are common, but, but think about this for a second. Who are the guys driving the boat? A lot of them are fishermen. Right? They're experienced sailors. They're used to being out in a boat. And they're fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. They're, they're used to these storms. They're used to this stuff. But they experience this storm, and it's so big that even these veteran uh, fishermen, here's what it says. Jesus was asleep. They woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Now, there's a lot of details in this text that just make it really interesting, helps us see this really happened. This isn't just a fable, right? Jesus is asleep on a cushion, and there's all these boats, and there's all these little things. But, but, but the thing you just can't miss is the accusation they make right? They're experiencing, these veteran guys, the worst fear they've ever had, which this must be a huge storm, right, if they're feeling that afraid. And they see Jesus. He's, a, he's asleep. <laughs> Interesting, this is the only place in the Gospels, the only time we ever hear that Jesus was sleeping was during a storm. Now, surely he slept other times, but this is the biggest storm they've ever experienced in their whole life, and he's, you know, catching Z's. Right, he's just asleep. He's on the stern of the boat. There's a cushion there. We got a picture of kind of what this boat would look like if you just kind of want to get a sense of how this would feel. There's a stern, um, which is sort of that, that plank there on the back. And so they're they're bailing water out. They're doing all this stuff. Jesus is conked, you know, REM cycle, and he's doing his whole thing. And 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 do you do you hear? Do you see the accusation they make? Teacher, do you not care? That we're perishing? The word perishing means to be destroyed, right? They think they're gonna die. They think they're gonna drown. And they didn't say it calmly like that, teacher. They said, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Do you not care? See, isn't that the question that all of us ask? When we get in circumstances that are stormy, we don't just say, God, make it stop. We don't just say, God, why? But in our heart of hearts, what we say, and sometimes it comes out loud, sometimes it's just in our heart, we say, God, don't you care? The assumption is, if God cared, he wouldn't let me go through this. So we say, God, don't you care? Where does that come from? Why do we we go there so quickly? Why did they go there so quickly? Jesus has shown he's committed to them, but right away they go, do you not care? Where does that come from? I think it comes all the way back from the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan. And Satan's basic temptation was, you can't trust God. There's this one tree that God said you can't have. And listen, since you can't have everything, God doesn't want you to have anything. He's holding out on you. He's not good. He can't be trusted. I, uh, I want to read to you a, a passage of that account from the Jesus Storybook Bible. This is a book that everyone in this room should get. Okay? This is amazing. Whether you have children or grandchildren or no children, you should read this to them and you should read this to you. Uh, I mentioned this at the last service, and there was a big run on them at, at our little book counter. So we've got a couple left, um, but get it on Amazon. We'll order more, but you should get this. This is an incredible, an incredible Bible. It's the Jesus Storybook Bible. The subtitle is Every Story Whispers His Name. It's by Sally Lloyd-Jones. I love it. Right? If you find this one to be too challenging, <laughs> hey, it's great. And even if you don't, it, it's fantastic. But in her account, in Sally Lloyd-Jones' account of Genesis 3, She calls it the terrible lie. And I just think it's marvelous the way she describes this. As soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered silently up to Eve. Does God really love you? The serpent whispered. If he does, why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's words hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. Suddenly she didn't know anymore. Just trust me, the serpent whispered. You don't need God. One small taste, that's all, and you'll be happier than you could ever dream. Eve picked the fruit and ate some, and Adam ate some too. And a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. That's the lie of Satan. That's the lie of the enemy. And that's the lie that comes into our hearts when we're afraid. God, don't you care? He does care. We'll look at how we know that in just a moment. But I want you to think about this for a moment. Because the fact that God care the fact that God is powerful enough to allow something to happen also means that God's powerful enough to have good reasons for it happening, right? T- take a look at this quote by Tim Keller. I think this is a fantastic quote. He's a pastor and author from New York. Uh, he says this, If you have a God great enough and infinite enough and powerful enough to be mad at because He doesn't stop your suffering, you also have a God who is great enough and infinite enough and powerful enough to have reasons to allow you to suffer that you can't understand. Think about that. If God's big enough that we can get mad at him when stuff doesn't go right, then he's also big enough that we can trust that he has a good reason for letting it happen. But the lie in our hearts, that place we start out at when these circumstances batter us and the wind batters us and the waves crash against us, is God, don't you care? That's the first place on the journey. That's where we start. How do we move from there to faith? Well, the next stop, the next thing we've got to see is Jesus. We go from fearful, fearing circumstances to seeing Jesus. Look at verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. It's fascinating here. Jesus, it says, rebuked the wind and the sea. He rebuked them. Now, that word is the same word that Mark uses throughout this gospel to describe Jesus rebuking demons, that there are these people filled with with demonic power, and Jesus rebukes them and they come out right? And, th- and th- that's significant because probably for Mark's original audience, they would have, uh, ancient people often thought of the sea and thought of water being kind of synonymous with evil and, and demonic power. And, and so this is a strong statement that Jesus is, in the same way he rebukes demons, he's rebuking the wind, he's rebuking the sea. He wakes up, he says, peace, be still. It's pretty straightforward pretty simple peace be still right L- listen Jesus talks to the wind and to the sea the way we talk to our kids hey, hey sit down be quiet but the wind and the sea actually obey him <laughs> right J- Jesus doesn't have to go all right I'm gonna count to three He just says, peace, be still, and it happens, right? That's the kind of authority He has. That's the kind of power that He has. That's the kind of strength that He has. And notice, Jesus doesn't have to appeal to some other authority, right? He doesn't have to say, in the name of the wind, God, and in the name of the sea, God, I appeal that... No, He is the authority. So He can just say, peace, be still, be still. And it happens. And and notice it says this. The wind ceased and there was great calm. Now get this. The wind dies and the sea is calm. What does that mean? What that means is when Jesus says these words, it's not like the wind stops, but everything's still rocking in the boat and it slowly mellows out. No. It means the wind stops, The water's like glass, totally still. In this moment, that lake went from the most dangerous they'd ever seen it to the most still they've ever seen it. That's the authority. That's the power of Jesus. That's what they see, and at the end they go, Who is this? Who is this guy? This is crazy. Right? They were in a fearful circumstance, and they be- got to see Jesus. But, but Mark's alluding to something in this passage that's incredible, and it's actually something he alludes to, it feels like, every single week. One of the things I see as I'm studying Mark, as I'm preparing this stuff, as I'm going through, is it feels like every single week, the passage is basically saying, Jesus is claiming to be God, trust him. Right? Week after week after week. Jesus is claiming to be God, trust him. Right? If you want to know what are the next 10 weeks going to be about, no matter who's preaching, Jesus claiming to be God, trust Him. Right? It's just over and over and over and over. Well, well, the only way you'd see that is if you were familiar with Psalm 107. And so I want to show this to you. In Psalm 107, uh, we're told to praise the Lord. And the psalmist gives a number of scenarios, a number of kinds of situations where God rescues people. And here's what he says in Psalm 107. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress, he made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Now listen, every time you read in the Old Testament and you see LORD in all caps like that, often it's kind of little, little all caps, small caps, every time that's happening, what it's referring to is the Hebrew word for God's name, Yahweh, right? So they cried to Yahweh in their trouble, and Yahweh made the storm be still and made the sea be hushed. God himself, the, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of creation, the God of the universe, the God who said, let there be light, and there was light. That's who they appeal to in Psalm 107. And the sea is still, the wind is hushed. Boom. And Mark is very intentional. His language is very similar to the language of Psalm 107, where he's saying, the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Why? Because Jesus is Yahweh. That's who Jesus is. Only God has that kind of authority. Peace, be still. Only God. They're amazed. They see the glory of Jesus. They say the majesty of Jesus. They see that Jesus is God. So I want to teach you a phrase. This is a phrase maybe you've heard me say before, but I want, you to, I want you to hear this. We're actually, after I read it to you, we're going to practice saying it a couple times. This would be worth writing down. This would be worth uh, putting in your phone as a reminder where maybe every morning it comes to you and you go, oh yeah, that's true. Here, here we go. Jesus is glorious so you don't need to be afraid. Jesus is glorious so you don't need to be afraid. Think about this for a second. Jesus is glorious. He's God. He's in charge. He has authority over the wind and the sea and over the circumstances in your life and over your story and over everything that's happened. Jesus is glorious, so you don't need to be afraid. Notice, it doesn't say Jesus is glorious, so you shouldn't be afraid. It says you don't need to. What is there to fear? If God is for you, who can be against you? Answer, nobody. What do you have to fear? Nothing, all right? So we're going to say this together. Change the you to I, all right? Ready? Jesus is glorious, so I don't need to be afraid. One more time. Jesus is glorious, so I don't need to be afraid. What if tomorrow... What if when that phone call came? What if when you were going into that difficult meeting, that difficult situation, what if you could say, Jesus is glorious, so I don't need to be afraid. Think about the freedom. Think about the joy. Think about the comfort. Think about the faith that would begin to birth in your heart trusting Jesus instead of being afraid of your circumstance. So we start out fearing our circumstances. We've got to, if we want to move to faith, we've got to see Jesus. And then interestingly, that takes us to fearing God. Now, maybe that's not what you expected, right? What's the journey from fear to faith? It's actually a journey from fearing circumstances to fearing God. Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 40. Jesus said to them, Why are you so afraid? That word afraid there. That particular word has the idea of cowardly. What are you you running from? What are you you so shaky about? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. That word means awe, amazement, wonder. What in the world? Right? It's It's a different word. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's interesting that phrase in verse forty-one. They were filled with great fear. In the original language, it has like the word for fear, and then the, and then the word mega, and then fear. Right. So kind of kind of a, a real literal translation would be they were afraid with mega fear. Right? Our translators say they were filled with great fear. But, but you've got to get the sense of this. Like, they were, right, think about this. This is the worst storm they've ever seen. The most afraid they've ever been on this boat. The most afraid they've ever been on this lake. Jesus says, peace be still. It's as clear as glass. And now they're going, okay, now I'm really afraid. <laughs> filled with mega Fear. Because listen, the answer to overcoming the fear of your circumstances isn't to say, stop fearing your circumstances. It is to see Jesus and start fearing Him. Start honoring Him. Start being in awe of Him. Start remembering, oh yes, Jesus is glorious, so I don't need to be afraid. That is faith. Notice that Jesus in his question links the idea of being afraid with the idea of not believing. Right? Do you see his question? Why are you so afraid? Uh, Hello, Jesus, Uh, because this is the worst thing I've ever seen. Jesus goes, yeah, but don't you trust me? It's really interesting, isn't it, that Jesus doesn't wake up Still the storm and then say, guys, I get it. I understand. It really was a tough situation. I, you know, I, I get it. I'm sorry. He doesn't say that. We go, well, that's not very compassionate. Really? See, what Jesus sees here is he's going, guys, trust me. Trust me. Why, why are you afraid? Where's your faith? Where's your trust? Trust me, I'm for you. I've told you I'm for you. I'm showing you I'm for you. Trust me. right? When you need faith is in the moments when you're afraid. right? That's especially when you need to trust him. Right? And so Jesus comes in and says, trust me, don't be afraid. Don't doubt my heart for you. I love this quote by uh, James R. Edwards. He's a commentator. Uh, wrote a great commentary I've been using through the, the Gospel of Mark. He, he said this, the real threat to faith comes not from a lack of knowledge, but from doubt and fear. Right? Some people go, well, I need to know a lot more, and then I'll be able to... really? It's not knowledge, it's trust. Right? And so when he says that, that the threat comes from doubt and fear, he's not saying that you can't have any questions, you can't ever ask anything, you can't ever get things answered, that there aren't you know, real thoughtful reasons for stuff. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if you doubt God's heart, If that poison has sunk into you and this thing happens and now you're doubting Him, then knowledge isn't the problem. The problem is you're doubting the Lord. And instead, Jesus says, see who I am. See that I'm Lord of heaven and earth. See that everything is in my hands and I'm in authority over it. See that I am glorious so you don't need to be afraid. how can we trust Jesus when these storms happen? Right, because listen, there's no guarantee at all that you won't get that diagnosis. You could get that phone call. You could be alone for the rest of your life. Your marriage might not get better. And someone might hurt your kids. The Bible never promises that that stuff won't happen to God's people. In fact, our lives are filled with storms. So if that's the case, knowing that God won't take away every storm, can we trust it? Yeah. And here's why. Because Jesus didn't just conquer that storm on the boat. He conquered the ultimate storm. So when we read the end of the Gospel of Mark the disciples will be asleep. Jesus will go to the Garden of Gethsemane concerned because he's going to perish in agony, in pain, his heart breaking as he anticipates taking on the sin of every person that would ever trust him. And he asks his disciples, will you you pray with me? And they fall asleep. And Jesus goes out into the storm alone. And on the cross, he conquers the storm of our sin and the storm of our guilt and the storm of our shame and the storm of our fear, and he conquers it. And he rises victoriously over it through his resurrection. And he says, listen, I have calmed for you the biggest storm there is. So when you're in the storm you're in, trust me, I'm for you. I love you. Jesus is glorious. So you don't need to be afraid. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And thank you for your love for us. God, forgive us for the times when we doubt your heart. Forgive us for the times when we lean into the poison of unbelief rather than the promises that we can trust. God, give us faith. Help us to see Jesus. God, I pray especially for us and for anyone here right now that's experiencing a storm. God, could they see you in it and through it? And would you move them from fearing that moment and that circumstance to fearing and trusting you? We pray in Jesus' name.